Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful place. We thank you for the blessing of being able to be here with people that we love. Lord, to celebrate the work that you are doing in the church, in all of our lives, and the sweet fellowship that you've given us with each other. And we pray for safety for the rest of the time that we are here, Father. And uh, we pray that our speech would be kind, that we would be gracious. We pray that you bless the hands that are still providing food and still serving you in this time. And we pray especially now that you would bless the preaching of your word, ready your people's hearts to hear and to receive and give me grace as I deliver it to them. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Let us begin by rereading Psalm 145, and then afterwards we're going to enter into the conclusion of our study that we began last Sunday. Psalm 145, 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love Him. 
but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Again, this is the second and final installment of our study in Psalm 145. Last time we focused on David's call to remember what was. This time we will emphasize his call to look ahead, being informed by what was. The wind just closed the back door for us. However, if you recall, last time the uh, past bled into the future. So we weren't able to just isolate it ultimately. It'll be the same uh, in this time, only the reverse will be true. So we will place greater emphasis upon the future, but not to the exclusion of the past or the very near future, which is with every passing moment, of course, becoming the present. But at the outset, I want to put a concept into your minds. And I wish for you to hold on to this for the duration of this sermon. I want this to be in the background of everything that you learn henceforth, but not so far in the background that you forget it. What I am asking is for you to keep this of which I speak just out of focus as we deal with other matters. So if you put your thumb up like this, maybe you did this when you were a kid, and you look directly at your thumb, you can still see everything that is behind, though it is not the uh, primary focus. And so with this, keep this concept ever-present while still leaving room for other issues in your field of vision. And this concept of which I speak is found in Psalm 145, 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. That's it right there, meditation. Meditation is the key to applying this psalm as it must be applied. And what we'll do now is establish the scope of our meditation and then we will address the issue itself. Text says that what is worthy of our meditation exists on quite a broad range of issues. All pertaining to God though and all of this is contained in the glorious splendor of his majesty and on his wonderful works. Again, that's verse 5. We spent a good bit of our time in the previous sermon raising just such issues to our remembrance. And these were things like God's goodness and his kindness and his love and his paternal nature and, of course, his righteousness. We also raised some of his wonderful works from our faith tradition, matters of God creating and sustaining and saving and delivering. But we spoke in the past tense. I don't think we need to keep this relegated to. I don't think we, in fact, should. I think it would be irrational to take his wonderful works as only things past. And clearly, clearly the glorious splendor of Yahweh's majesty is not relegated to the past. His glory endures, endures for all generations. And in fact, his glorious majesty isn't even limited to time and its three tenses because God, of course, exists outside of time. But thinking as we do as beings who are in time, this meditation has its fixation on all that God is. So his majestic nature and his being, as well as all that he has done and all that he has promised to do. Our meditation as a concept has, of course, fallen on hard times. You have the Eastern mystics, and most of the time when you speak of this, that's what people think about. Uh, what they do is either weird or plainly demonic, and generally both. Westerners, though, we have TikTok and the like, and YouTube, and various different kinds of social media, which is to say that for us, meditation pretty well does not exist at least not in any healthy way. Now, it is true that everybody meditates, period. And if you doubt this, I would offer you the evidence that everybody struggles with anxiety. And anxiety is impossible without meditation. Anxiety is what happens when a mind dwells on the rot of this world and the rot in a person's own soul. And, in fact, the inevitability of this is why we TikTok, actually. 
Here comes this flood of undesirable emotions. You have desperation, sullenness, sorrow, regret, dull ache in your heart and in your mind, and this is all telling you that something is very, very wrong, and what do we do? Well, we hurry up and shove that pacifier in the baby's mouth, consisting of jumping on another device. And we do this before we even have time to ask, hey, what is wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? And so a problem not considered is neglected. But one of the problems with this is that you can't neglect it forever. Eventually, you will be on a device, and the battery in that device will run out in a situation where you cannot recharge it or simply reach for something else. And then your mind will run riot, and you'll not be able to control it. Also, at some point, you do have to lie down to sleep. As David did in Psalm 6 then, you will make your bed to swim and you will water your couch with your tears. But unlike David, this society is godless and so there is no comfort after the crying. And if left untreated by Christ, people often kill themselves. And in fact, they very often kill themselves. Suicide rates are through the roof, higher than they were in the Great Depression and the World War II era. What happens when you finally turn the noise off is something like what happens with a kinked hose when you unkink it. When you straighten it out, you don't get the same pressure that you would have had otherwise. You get a rush, and people cannot handle this. They were not meant to handle this. They were meant to be able to deal with things as they come up, not deal with everything all at the same time, and so the mind suffers greatly. But this of which I speak is Antichrist meditation. It is the godless mind digging a rut consisting of everything evil without and within. And so you have the tire that inevitably keeps finding that same rut over and over and over again until we succumb to the effect that even if we do not kill our bodies, we still end up murdering our souls. Christian meditation, though, is not digging into despair. It's one of the ways that we, in fact, hide in the shelter of God's sacred tent, as in Psalm 27. And in the same psalm, it's how we're lifted up high upon the rock. Godly meditation, in contrast to its satanic imitation, lifts, it elevates. Let me give you a cause and effect that you should be aware of. And that's if you never get lost in the glorious splendor of his majesty and on his wonderful works, you will lose yourself. And this is true of unbelievers because God is their creator. Like it or not, they are connected to him. They bear his image. They will always be incomplete and insufficient without him. But it's true of believers, of course, in a special way, because God has made us new creations with new identities. We are in Christ. That's not what we do. It's who we are. Greatly affects what we do, obviously. But it is our most essential essence. So thinking in terms of construction, as I am prone to do, this exists way below the roof and the walls, the foundation walls. This is the footer or the chief cornerstone of our existence. This is Christ. And in the spirit also that he gave us, and the Father that he connects us to as well. This is who we are, it's what we are, as well as it does determine who we can and will become. In Christ is our definition as a people, defined by God and bound eternally to his nature. If we were fish, he would be the water. And yet, like one immersed in something, we can easily forget to focus on that something because of its ubiquity. And we're not fish, and so we don't exist in water, but we do all breathe the air. We require it on a daily basis, and without it, we would immediately wither and very shortly thereafter die, and yet we think little of it. 
Now, Christian identity often works this way. This is why the mind must be trained, and what it must be trained to do is meditate upon the God who defines us. Meditation is a sport that our minds need to be trained for. But if talk of training sounds like a constant struggle, let me give you some comfort. And uh, that is the knowledge that this will not always require rigor, because this is the sort of thing that once you train it, it will become instinctive. You know, Mary didn't uh, set down and as a matter of great discipline, ponder and treasure in her heart all that the angel had told her about God and his Messiah. She did it naturally. As it is in nature, it is with the mind. When you uh, wear that path once, it's much more easily followed. And that path looks like everything that we discussed last time and everything that we will discuss this time. And in fact, I hope everything that I serve to you every Sunday. It is all that is in the book of God as seen in the light of nature. And in this corpus, there is more than any person could mention in a thousand lifetimes, much less meditate upon so deep as the mind of Yahweh. But know that meditation is mandatory. It is not optional. It is not enough to glance at God. You must, as David said, meditate. Now, because the salvation of your soul depends upon it, but the sustaining of your soul absolutely does. You can think of it like that lake out there. Okay, the lake has been made, it exists. How many of you have walked around it, though? Have you seen the various streams that feed it? Okay, so the lake exists, it has been made, it is already there, and yet it is constantly being fed. We have already been made in Christ. But there are many streams that run into us. And these consist of all that God is and all that God has done. And if you are not feeding your mind and your soul with that, then you will lose sight of the identity that you have already been granted. As the deer pants for the water brook, so your soul should long for God because it needs God as the deer needs the water. And this core fundamental need for the Christian in this life is not satiated by spiritual peekaboo, as you do with your children. You look and you see and then you put your hand back up. That's not the way that this can work. It requires a mind abiding with God, set upon God, fixed upon God. And now this said, let me fill out a bit more what we should be meditating upon with a focus on this time uh, on the future. And in this psalm, there is the future experienced in this world and there is the forever future, which transcends our lives and in fact this world. And these are the two categories which will become our two headings. And we're going to deal with the latter first. And what we're after here is the application of this psalm's wisdom to our current context. So what does this look like? What is a proper assessment of our situation? As the politicians ask, what is the state of our union, but really the uh, world more broadly? And we'll leave behind the propaganda and we'll seek to make a sober assessment. We're going to hit the broad strokes here and focus on the really existential stuff. We will acknowledge these major aspects of our reality and as we do so, we will also acknowledge the greater reality of who God has always been and who he will always be and we will apply the former to the latter. So the first issue that I want you to consider is Satan's war against the church. Last 10 to 15 years, we've seen an accelerated falling away from Christ's visible church, probably longer than that, probably more like a couple decades now. And this is, I think, unlike anything that we've experienced in American church history, anyhow. 
And this has largely developed as follows. You have the pragmatic, squishy kind of Christians caving to identity politics or cultural Marxism or the LGBTQ cult or emperor worship and empire worship. And all of these, in fact, very often at the same time. And then the American church being faced with unprecedented challenges and in many uh, instances turns to dominionism. And this is where you take dominion over culture and politics, and this is in response to the church's previous and the erroneous abdication of all of these arenas. We walked away, and then the pendulum swung too far the other way. But in so many instances, a good desire became an idolatrous distraction from the church's core pursuit of bringing souls into the kingdom and then teaching them how to live in the kingdom. Now, the invisible church is intact, and you need to recognize this distinction. She is all that Christ said she would be. But the visible church consisting of believer and unbeliever, mixed, it is in a state of chaos. And this chaotic spin is throwing out false professor after false professor at breakneck speed. And as I was developing this particular part of the sermon, I happened to look up through my front window across the street, and I saw in my neighbor's yard, this will tell you something about where I live, if you don't know, though I think you all do, I saw a commercial sifter for beans or corn, I don't know, I think corn, but it, it pulls the kernels off of the cob and it separates the plants and then all of that gets put into a pile and that is not what you keep. That is not valuable. You can burn it, you can compost it, you can do whatever, but it is not the fruit. And I thought that is a fitting illustration for what is happening at this time. God is sifting. But what has been shocking for many of us is just how little actual wheat was left, according to the biblical metaphor, after the sifting was done. And we also at the same time recognize that the sifting is in fact not done. And that's always true. God is always sorting. He is always purifying. But for us, I think it's very true. Should the Lord tarry, things can and will get much worse And the more costly following Christ becomes, the fewer that there will be who are willing to pay that price. Not until all of the profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, has been drained out of this will the majority of the false prophets, P-R-O-F-P-H-E-T-S, be removed. There is now less money in Orthodox Christianity than there used to be, but there is still unfortunately enough to attract many charlatans. And we further recognize that he who ordained that judgment should begin in the house of God has brought judgment upon his own house personally. Those false converts are not simply falling away. They're being pushed out of the sifter into the waste pile by God. This is God's doing in response to our sin. This culture is in many ways the church's child. Visible church, that is. And the traits seen in it were passed to it by us. And not to us personally as a church, but to us as the church writ large in this society. And we are being judged for our cowardice and for our wickedness. We may then ask, what of the promise of God's posterity, which is Christ's posterity that will serve him, as was spoken of in Psalm 22, verse 30? How will the little that remains be preserved? How can we know that according to his promise, it actually will be, and that the remnant will not be wiped clean and thus We don't need to despair, as Elijah did, at the thought that we are alone, or nearly so. But I go back to the previous sermon. Remember the past, so that you do not forget to trust for the future. 
And one past event that might be helpful for us to remember here is the judgment handed down by God through the prophet to Messiah. And I'm going to give you this, and you're going to ask why in the world this is actually encouraging. If you take a glance below the surface, I think you will understand why. 2 Kings 21, 11 through 13. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. And those things were, by the way, very similar to what America has done and is doing, is serving up your children to Moloch. He sought Isaiah in half, so they were opposing and murdering the prophets. But going on, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Like I said, it might be hard to see the encouragement in that. I might be saying if that's how you encourage, I'd hate to see how you discourage. What is the positive takeaway from that for us? Well, what did he do with the dish, actually? He wiped it. He cleaned it. He purified the nation. He purified his people. What he did not do was take the dish and shatter it on the side of the counter or shatter it on the floor because he was not done with his people. He would keep a remnant and then he would draw from that remnant a Messiah. Similarly, he is not done with his people in this time. The promise remains that he will build his church. What he is doing now in America and across the world is wiping the dish, not shattering it. But we don't merely remember and therefore hope. We also call upon the Lord in truth, verse 18. We cry out for salvation, verse 19, because we know that he will hear our cry. Also in verse 19, do not forget to pray. Meditation is critical because meditation on the past gives you hope for the future. But prayer is what brings those blessings of God that our people have experienced in the past into our present. God does not just want you to know that he is good because you remember that he always has been. He wants you to ask him to be good and to do good for you. And not merely as an act of expressing fealty. And fealty is completely appropriate considering that God is king and you should offer him that. But with respect to this, he wants you to petition him because that is what you do with a father. You know that your dad is your dad and that he's good because he has been a good dad, but you still ask him to be good to you and to do good for you. And But people will say, yeah, but our heavenly father, unlike our earthly one, already knows what we need. Yeah, that's true. But even so, if you fail to ask him, it's clear that you've forgotten that he is your provider and that your need is not acute enough to naturally result in the unction to cry out to him. And prayer is both concerted and instinctive. What we say about God is concerted, or at least it should be. There are far too many people who are far too flippant in the way that they speak to a holy God. You have to make sure that what you're saying about him is accurate and what you're saying to him is reverent. But the act of praying, though it should be planned at times and scheduled into our lives, is absolutely instinctive, just as it is with a human child and their human parents to seek from God that which they need. Child in need asks, and so must the children of God. And that leaves one aspect of our response to God's sustaining of his church, and it is critical. It occurs in verse 21, it is praise. 
My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And this is in response to Yahweh, verse 19, fulfilling the desires of those who fear him. We looked at Peter being freed from prison a little while ago, being rescued from death, and this occurred through the prayers of the saints. After he was freed, the saints there did not forget to praise, and neither should we. Indeed, we cannot when the Lord grants our prayers and performs miracles in our midst. We, as a local church specifically, have a great enemy. He is the enemy of all of God's people, but he hates us too. He hates us specifically. And he has attacked us with the intention of destroying us many times. And he continues to do this constantly. And yet he has failed every time up until now. I remember, and I've told you about this, but I remember having all of my funding pulled a week before I ever preached my first sermon because I wouldn't join in gospel ministry with Roman Catholics. And the gentleman who did that to me also told me that God told him that the church would not last a year. Well, here we are seven years later, and he is still a son of the devil. If he is on this side of uh, eternity or not, I don't know. But the Lord sustained us through that. We have been through many situations of church discipline, which were very hard. And most of them have ended badly. And yet the Lord has sustained us. And through many of these situations, there have been slanders from different parties over the course of the years. There have been pressures of all kinds. And for me, I don't like to think of these things. I especially don't like to think of them because there are none of them that I do not know about. I am one of a few in the congregation for whom that is true. And I fear dwelling upon them but I should think of them in the right way. I should think of them in a way that causes me to remember to praise the Lord because all of these things I was delivered through, and so were you. And you were, if you were here, or if you have just come to this church, the only reason that there is a church to come to is because Christ sustained us through all of these things. Satan has children, and they imitate, and they infiltrate. And indeed, on a macro level, he has co-opted Uncle Sam. But our lampstand remains. And Christ has kept it lit, and he will keep it lit so long as we are faithful. But here's the deal with the faithfulness even that we have. It is upheld by Christ also. So he is the sustainer of all things, and all is by his grace. Next, consider, though, the satanic rage being exercised against Adam's race. It has no parallel in human history, and it's not because the desire was not there to murder humans by Satan and erase God's image bearers from the face of the earth. It's not because we're more wicked than we've ever been as people. It is because we have technology that we never had before. Technology that, for example, allows us to mutilate our children and then so fake reproductive organs back onto them and sustain their lives through ongoing medical care when they would have just previously died. And when it comes to murdering infants altogether, we are also, because of technology, much more efficient than we ever could have been or were in the past. If you've learned about the final solution that uh, was uh, created by a man by the name of Reinhard Heydrich, He would envy us if he could see what we have done. The efficiency with which we take a child from the womb to the garbage can is horrifying. 
and even closer home to home for us. And I was just speaking to Debbie about this the other day. There are murmurings everywhere about the state seizing our children with a clenched fist, trying to end homeschool and other alternatives. And of course, they want this because they want your children more than they want anything. The public education system is a satanic church unto itself. And then there is the threat that even if we do not put our children there, or even if we watch our children very carefully, if they are there, the state may still come and take them if we do not violate our consciences with respect to so many aspects of their care. This is ever-present. All of us think about it regularly as Christian parents who live in this society. So what is our response to this to be? How do we respond to the godlessness that is everywhere and the godless that actively seek the destruction of our children? I'm going to give you a couple answers here, and I'm going to start with the honest one. And then after that, I'll give you the right one. The honest answer is that our natural response is anxiety producing meditation upon the filth of this world, as was previously mentioned. It isn't just a struggle for unbelievers. It's a struggle for believers as well. And so because we do this, we are not lifted up upon the rock. We are mired in the mud. And I'll speak for myself, at least. I do this frequently. I shouldn't, but I do. And I would assume that I am not alone in this. And I think the reason for this is because our souls are provoked when it comes to our children in a way that they aren't with anything else. There is nothing that has the potential to create the kind of anxiety in me than the potential for something bad happening with my children. And so I think upon these things and I dwell upon them. But what is the right response? And the response that I give when my mind and my heart are clear? Well, the right response is to call upon the Lord in truth. Verse 18, it is to cry out for the salvation of our children, verse 19, because we know that he will hear our cry in verse 19 as well. And lest we forget, it is to praise as in verse 21. And we're going to look through all of these responses so that we understand what this looks like and how to apply it. And then we'll relate this to entrusting the well-being and future hope of our children to the Lord. So to start, what events from our past might we look back upon in order to provide ourselves and each other with hope in the future to come and the future that is unfolding now. It seems to me that I heard something about an ancient ruler that once tried to murder a promised deliverer while he was still yet an infant and that the Lord preserved that infant in order to make him a deliverer and did so through the provision that came from that wicked ruler. And when he became of age, he returned to the land of Israel to emancipate the people of God so that those people were then able to carry out their children upon their shoulders and in their arms. And that, of course, was Moses. And then, of course, 1,500 years or so after this, it happened again, only with much greater effect. Our Lord, as an infant, was taken away from persecution, and then he returned to grant salvation to all the children of God. And so as it has been in the past, it will be in the future. And we must praise the Lord for what He has done and what He is doing to preserve our children. They say that there is a surveillance state that there is no rescue from. No, there is always rescue in God. Always. There always will be. And as you strive to trust the process that is now in process, 
look back upon what the Lord has already done with you and yours. Not just ancient history as, as much as we ought to, because that is our history as a people. That is the sacred text. But think about yourselves. I did not ask your permission to use you in this time, but because I have only good things to say, I think you'll agree to this. And if not, I guess I'll beg your pardon. But I thought about you, thought about your family with this. Uh, in the years that you have been a part of the church, he has become a believer because he heard somebody from the pulpit say for the first time that his depression uh, was not something he should be pitied for, but it was a sin that he was committing against a holy God. This young man then was later saved uh, because authentic faith was preached and he had been wearing a mask and so that mask was pulled down on his way home from church, as I recall. Your son David was saved through glorious circumstances. And then he had a problem, which is that he was unevenly yoked. And then the woman to whom he was unevenly yoked was also saved through glorious circumstances. And now those children and that family that were living like pagans not long ago have a Christian home. And you... Look at the sanctification that the Lord has tended to in your life, in the life of your wife, the remarkable change that has occurred and that is still occurring. We're not done yet. The Lord's not done yet. The work is continuing, but we look back with hope or we look forward with hope because we look back upon what the Lord has done. I also think of my circumstances and not just in my own family, but all that led up to them in the last century or so. My name is Austin. If you don't know this, I am named after my great-grandfather. He was the bastard son of a woman, and in those days you did not do that, so she was sent away to a neighboring town in Mississippi to cover her shame as much as could be covered. He evidently came upon the Presbyterian tradition. My grandfather became a Presbyterian. He then married a woman who was a Wesleyan, which is a serious downgrade from Presbyterian, so I wish they'd stayed more with that. But my Aunt Maddie, who essentially raised my mother, she was a Baptist, and so my mother was taken more toward truth by her and through her influence. And then, when I get close to 30, Lord brings people into my life who introduce me to Reformed theology, and I become a student of it. And my family is taken into even greater truth. And my children are now in a church that preaches the truth in a way that I never was. My wife was a Pentecostal. Look at all that the Lord has done for us. And you have your own stories. Far be it for me to not remember and meditate upon the things that the Lord has done and then forget to trust Him and praise Him in the future for what He is doing and will do. Next, consider the current war against marriage. And marriage is an existential matter. No major society has maligned it in the way that ours has, and you do not come back from the sorts of things that we are doing. Our civilization has redefined it as though it was theirs to redefine. And even we as Christians feel the pull of the world upon us in this. If we are honest, marriage is very hard. And forsaking it is much easier when the world does so with such alacrity. 
But then we remember that we are the bride of Christ, and we remember that through all of our failings and all the grief that we have caused his spirit, he has kept us. And we remember all the sanctification that has come through our marriages of a kind and significance that, have, that could have never come without it. And we see our children that have been born from it, and we realize that we forget the joy that comes from it so often, precisely because joy comes from it so often. And we consider the generational destruction brought upon the descendants of those who did forsake it. For every bastard whose children were blessed and became children of God, there are ten who leave behind them only pain. And so we thank God for his covenant to us and the covenant of marriage made between us. And we let no man separate what God has joined. And we praise the Lord for all the blessings of family. This I do more naturally than I do with other things, but I don't even do this as well as I should. I find myself very, very often praying and thanking the Lord for my children as I see them do something and for my wife. And we trust that he who has sustained his bride always will help us for the duration of this life until the lesson of our union is fully taught in our full union to him. Oh, finally, I want you to consider the state of our civilization. In a word, it is in ruin. And I could go off on a lengthy diatribe here, but I don't think that that's necessary considering that you all have eyes and that you all experience the decay every single day. I also think that it would be counter to my intention here, which is to focus you upon God, if we start to drown in this. But there is this question about whether or not God is going to grant us repentance leading to the salvation of this nation and of the West. I think perhaps, and I pray for this and I work for it too, but perhaps he will instead grant repentance and yet withhold national salvation because he did this through Josiah. I don't hear people bringing up this option, but it is an option. Josiah turned to the Lord and he turned the people to the Lord and yet the wrath of God remained and he was very clear about that. And it did come. Or perhaps what we have seen of his providence demonstrates that he most likely will not. And if you're asking my opinion, this is my opinion. God works more often through providence than he does miraculously. And providence is one thing building upon another, building upon another, creating ends that become inevitable because of the momentum, unless God intervenes, which he still may. But I think the probability, again, if you were asking my opinion is that the end that seems inevitable will come. But in any event, this issue could not be more squarely germane to this study because Psalm 145 is a political psalm. And not in the way that everything in Scripture has political implications, but this psalm is directly political. And this is established immediately. Verse 1 again. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And I skipped from verse 1 to verse 11 and read through 13. Now God's kingdom, as it is spoken of there and as it occurs in Scripture, is always political. King, obviously, is a fundamentally political position. Kingdom is the body politic ruled by the king. 
And that always refers to God's absolutely sovereign reign. But it can in Scripture, depending upon how it's being used, be narrowed or broadened. God can be the king of his people specifically, or God can be referred to as the king of all people broadly. He can be spoken of as the king of kings. But in this psalm, the context is as broad as it could possibly be. He reigns over the natural world. Verse 9 and 10. Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. And your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. Verse 21. All flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. He reigns also, though, over his people, and your godly ones again shall bless you. Verses 18 through 20. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him. He reigns over the wicked as well. Verse 20, all the wicked he will destroy. And furthermore, by invoking and using Yahweh almost exclusively, David establishes God as absolute sovereign over anything we might otherwise leave out. Again, he is altogether other and anything other than him he has complete and total dominion over. So the angelic hosts demons, all things material, immaterial, period. You can include time in this also. Because time is in view here. All of time. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. The sovereign rule of God spans over all time because God exists outside of time. How is that for political commentary? That is worth piping through your earbuds constantly and immersing yourself in entirely. And if you do that with this, you won't even get a tightness in your chest and potentially an ulcer eventually. On the contrary, you will receive rest for your soul. Now understand this, all opinions aside, about the direction that we are headed in. Our civilization is going to die. It is going to die. Because that is what all civilizations do. We are not eternal. We are not the city on a hill. We never were. God has his city on a hill. He will bring it. Now, this may occur for us ten years from now. It may occur a hundred years from now. But no kingdom is eternal but his kingdom. And the remembrance of this was handled last time. We went through all the various nations in the Old Testament. Not nearly all of them, in fact. That have been relegated to the ash heap of history. This one will be eventually as well. But Christ's throne remains. But here again you have a consideration that can take you one of two ways depending upon the result of it. You can become mired in it. You can be brought very, very low. Or you can be prompted to meditate upon a kingdom that will never rot and that will never wither. When all you listen to is the news, you linger longer than you should. But when you use the news as a touch point, you will long for a king like God and his kingdom forever, and you will celebrate its future coming. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of God's kingly reign is found in Christ, a fact which the New Testament authors celebrate. John 12, 12 through 15, 
The large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. John 18, 33 through 37. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And here is Peter on Pentecost. Acts 2, 29 through 33, speaking to the people that should have received their king. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this with you, which you both see and hear. And here is Paul in a benediction, I think you know, one of the greatest in all of Scripture, which is saying a lot. 1 Timothy six thirteen through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And here is the final king of the covenant, the true king of creation, making all flesh, bless his name forever and ever, as King David said in verse 21. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is his right to reign, and he will reign forever and ever. And it is our privilege and our responsibility to remember, to ruminate, to remind, to proclaim, and to praise until he does return, and then from that point forever after. Meditate upon those things, Christian. Think upon them. 
And I say that to Christians. But I say it to you who are not as well. Meditate upon the glory of God. Meditate upon the goodness of God, knowing that if you leave this life, you will not have it. Meditate upon the wrath of God, knowing that this king expresses his power for good and for good in destruction. Let this place called Peniel be the place where you meet God, as Jacob did. I turn to him now, and we pray that you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you to learn more from your word. We thank you for this psalm, for its richness. We thank you for your goodness to your people. We thank you for your infinite power. We thank you that you are a God unlike any God. We thank you that there is no God beside you. We thank you that we can, Lord, continue forever to unravel who you are and that we will never reach the end of it. Lord, we pray that you would fix our hearts and our minds upon you. We pray that you would remind us of who you are constantly in mundane activities throughout the day and in the night watches. We pray that you would wake us up so that we would remember who you are. Father, we are very good at focusing on the concerns of this world and very bad by nature at focusing upon you. We pray for your grace in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.